So this is one of those intense and convicting passages from God's word today. And I'm excited to open it because I am convinced that God can use his word to change our lives for the better. Now, if you've been here, we've been for the last couple weeks, we're looking at the book of James, paragraph by paragraph, through the lens of suffering, because I'm convinced that James was written to people who are suffering, to the tribes scattered all over because of persecution, excuse me, they were scattered because of their strong saving faith in Jesus. And when you read James, it talks about suffering. From the beginning, consider it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. To, toward the end, it answers the question, who do you call when you're sick and you need prayer? James is, God word, is God's word for the exhausted. James is for people who may have thought that being a Christian would make life easier, not harder but get caught off guard. And to be clear, James isn't working hard at planting a church or reaching out in evangelistic ways, but James is working hard at encouraging faithful, believing Christians who are suffering and scattered. And to be honest, the book of James may be less helpful for people who are not Christians, but it is exactly what you need if you believe and you know the gospel, but you're disoriented by suffering. James is written for people like us who pray and we worship even when God says no. James is about living out your faith consistently, one step at a time, even when challenges push you toward maturity. And this is so valuable because the truth is a Christian life is hard. It can be exhausting and you may not get to choose what sorts of valleys you walk through, but you can control how you react as you interact with your good shepherd. And the fact is, one of the really difficult parts about suffering is what you do in response. And this morning, James is gonna tell us about one of the most damaging, collateral damages that we all cause in the middle of suffering that can make things go from bad to worse. We are looking specifically at what you say when you're in a storm and why it matters. This is one of those topics that's easy to overlook because when you're suffering and all you see is your problems, sometimes you don't even see how you react or how what you say impacts the people around you. But if you could see it, you would be able to protect yourself from the damage that so many of us fall victim to. In fact, you could use your suffering as an opportunity to make things better and influence people for just Incredibly good. Now, that's where we're going this morning. This is not a new topic. A couple weeks ago, we talked about what to do in trials. And James said, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. Someone read the next line for me. Slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We already talked about that a couple weeks ago. What do you do in trials? What do you do when trials, disappointment, exhaustion, and frustration boil up? What do you do after you've stood on the foundation of true faith, which we talked about, letting perseverance do its work of bringing uh, maturity and joy? We talked about the chapter one. James says, whatever you do, be careful not to do what your first impulse might be. Don't lose it just because you lose. Be slow to speak. We've talked about this. Suffering is a learning time, not a lecture time. So be quick to hear. And then maybe 
the hardest part of faith is waiting. Waiting on God's promises instead of lashing out, taking things in your own hands. Now, today's section of James, he is looping back the same topic. I think because it's really important. That when you're going through a difficult season, don't lose your temper. And uh, I, I, I got to admit this because it seems so basic, but this is something I need to hear from God. I, I don't think about it sometimes, but words are so impactful. And I've thought about it. Like, when do I say the dumbest stuff? When, when do I have those actions that I want to take back? And I've had kind of the, the loop go through my head where I've had to go off an apology. Anyone else do that? I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, or when you have to apologize for stuff, but normally I found that apologies have two parts. What I did and why I did it. And for me, when I have to go and say, I'm so sorry, Whatever comes next sounds like me talking about a trial of various kinds. It sounds like this, Dad, I, uh, son, I didn't mean to say those words. Don't you talk like that. But I hit my thumb with a hammer, and I couldn't help what I said, right? Anyone else think like that? Or I should not have yelled at you for that dumb thing. I didn't mean it. That wasn't really me, although maybe it was. I was just really upset about, I don't know, the Eagles not being in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, I know. I don't laugh at your trials, but look, I'm so sorry. I was so impatient and rude to, I don't know, the, the lady at the checkout counter. But you've got to understand, the kids were sick, they were up all night, I'm exhausted, and I couldn't help it. I, I see some parents nodding, I can't help if you're agreeing with me or nodding off to sleep, because your kids were all up, up all night. But all these apologies have something in common. We, deep down, assume that we do something because we're going through something and we have no other option but to say the wrong thing. So the best we can do is damage control. So we say, I'm sorry, I did this because of this. And I'll be honest, I picked some really lame examples because the real ones hurt too much. But here's the thing, it doesn't actually work. Words are so damaging. It's trying to put together a shattered glass with the pieces all over it's so easy to say words, it's hard to take them back. What James says, you cannot repair in meaningful, easy ways the damage that your words cause, words that can do so much good or so much bad. And that's just not what I've discovered. I think that every single person in this room, you have both caused damage and you have been damaged by words spoken. I mean, think about really common things that people say or heard, like, I've never thought about, I, I never thought that when we were going out, they'd, she'd talk to me the way she does now. I can't believe what I'm hearing when my son talks back to me. She hung up on me right in the middle of a sentence. He only speaks nicely to me when he wants something. I, I feel like I'm spending all my time breaking up my kids' arguments. Sure, he asked for my forgiveness, but I'm having such a hard time letting go of how hurt I am because it was so cruel. We can never be friends like we were before. I wish my family could go through an entire day without someone fighting. And these are notes from a Christian counselor repeating things that he hears all day long from people going through difficulty. And that's just not them. That's not just me. That's all of us. We have all used words to cause damage. And we've all, in a way, been steered by words spoken to us 
And a lot of the times, the words that we speak, the words that we're impacted by, impacted by, is in the middle of suffering. And we assume there's just this link that we have no other recourse but to say the wrong things when we suffer. When I hit my thumb with a hammer, I have no choice but to say those words. And we, we, we learn cycles, and we, we, we pass things on, and it gets worse and worse. But today's passage is incredibly challenging because it's God's word to faithful people in the middle of suffering about the power of words. Let's just dive in. We have a lot to cover. I'm going to start in verse 2 of James chapter 3. James writes, For we all stumble in various ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, look, I, I don't know everybody in this room. I, I don't get to hear what you talk like at home. But here's what's true about you, whether you're here in this room or online. You are someone who stumbles in what they say. In fact, raise your hand up high if you've never said something you'd like to take back. Okay, raise your hand if you've never been hurt by words spoken to or about you. My, my hand's actually just not up. It's, a, it's an example, right? That's what I thought, right? None of us have hands up. Who among us haven't regretted things we've said? All of us have, right? Who haven't wanted to have serious conversations with loved ones, but it's just there's weird boundaries or obstacles or stuff to get past? Who among us can say realistically that my words are always appropriate, my words are always kind. Uh, not me, that's just an example. Uh, like, my take on James, right, this is an interpretive decisions, but I think that James is in the context and it's about suffering and stress. You know what happens when you're tired, exhausted, stressed, angry, disappointed, or hurt? You know what happens? Well, we're more likely than ever to lose control of our words. And me, I, I get it. I am very sympathetic to this. In fact, if I were writing the Bible, this is verse 2, the next line I would write would sound like this. I would write, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. And for me, if I were writing the Bible, the next line would go, but nobody's perfect other than Jesus. So if you're not Jesus, don't worry about it. Everybody stumbles. If I were writing the Bible, I'd say, I mean, who doesn't? say bad things when they're upset. You can't help it. It's fine. I've had to parent while tired. I vented at customer service because they deserve it. I would say the next verse I would, I would write would be, words aren't that big of a deal because nobody's perfect. And you should probably know this, especially if you're newer to church. Part of the exercise of hearing God's word is a constant routine of going, well, here's how I would write it. Here's what God says, and I'm wrong and God's right, right? I may not think that it's a big deal to use words imperfectly, and you might agree with me, right? Uh, I think I'm right, but God disagrees with both of us. God thinks that your words spoken in suffering or not are a bigger deal than we think. And James offers pictures. James says your words are like it would be like if you put a bit in the mouth of a horse so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies as well. In other words, it doesn't seem like a big deal. It's a small thing, like, like words, thoughtlessly spoken. They change the course of your entire life. 
Or look at ships. They're large, driven by uh, strong winds, but they're guided by a very strong rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. The tongue is small, but it steers the course of your life. Today we might use a different illustration, like a pin in a steering wheel or something like that, but you get the idea. Not a small deal, it's a big deal. Your words change the course of a life like a rudder changes the course of a ship or a bit changes the course of a horse. We think, I think, that words thoughtlessly spoken are not a big deal. But James says your words uttered with or without thought have the power to change everything. Your life, the people you influence, your community. I don't want to use too many illustrations, but wars, uh, words start wars. They take away or give freedom, prosperity. They, I'll be honest, you'll have a hard time imagining any large world-changing thing that doesn't start with words. I couldn't think of any. The problem is our words are out of control. Here's the next image. James writes, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. It's easy for me to think that words aren't a big deal. God says your words are a big deal. They're like a spark that can start a big fire. You know what I mean? I'm fascinated. I'll use this as an illustration. Here's a story from a couple years ago, uh, 2020, the El Dorado Ranch Park in California. There was a beautiful scene. A young couple gathered with their loving friends, and they're set for a gender reveal party. You remember the story? Uh, it was a brand new baby. Is it a boy or a girl, pink or blue? And they've got the cake the decorations, and of course, the announcements all planned out. And this is 2020 again. Uh, I'm old enough to remember when gender reveals uh, were basically saying, going, hey guys, it's a girl or a boy, or we don't know, but no, no, no. Apparently these days they throw big parties, and this couple used a colored sparkler, like, you know, the kind that shoots out like smoke or a couple little sparks, literally sparks. And one of those things, pink or blue, I would say not a big deal, but you can, if you remember the story, they light it up and they hear the cheers of laughter. Their, their friends and family got really excited and they thought that was the end of it, tiny spark thing. But you know, we're talking about this because the sparks set off a giant fire that tore through the, far, the park like, well, like wildfire. And if you remember this story, what started off as a harmless celebration, not a big deal, it, it, it caused massive destruction. You may know the El Dorado forest fire took two and a half months, two and a half months of raging fires. It destroyed 23,000 acres, that's a lot of land, and cost $42 million to control it. That's not damage. That's just stopping the fire. People died, they were injured, something like 20 plus buildings were burnt to the ground. And the Bible takes all of that 
emotional weight and cost. It says, your words are like that spark. It doesn't seem like a big deal. You may think, oh, it's over. But you have no idea how much is impacted by your words. A moment of thoughtless speech can cause a lifetime of damage. Rumor and gossip spreads like wildfire. This is a theme all over in the Bible. This is, I'm going to read a passage from Proverbs, just as one example. Proverbs 16, 27, 28, a scoundrel plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A perverse man stirs up dissension, a gossip, a gossip separates good friends. And I totally get why it feels so good to let out steam. I understand why and how gossip makes you feel better by putting other people down. But the Bible says that words are damaging. And true faith, we talked about this last week, allows you to trust in God's sovereignty. To go, I don't understand, but I'm going to keep walking. You can trust the Lord instead of lashing out or manipulating. But James doesn't want to move past this without you knowing what's at stake. Your words are a big deal. And me, I'm happy to go, well, that's fine. Everybody struggles with this. God seems to say, sure, everyone may struggle, but it's a big deal. Verse 7, I'm going to keep going because James isn't done. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature, it can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being, we'll come back to that phrase there, no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And I think it's St. Augustine that points out when James says, see that line, no human being can tame the tongue. Augustine says that's, that's a hint at the answer to self-control. That when the tongue is controlled, when we learn to control how we react when we're in a really rough spot, it's because of wisdom from above. That God does something. That one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control. In fact, if you're still wondering what God expects our words to be, I'm just going to read from you one of our theological documents. This is the Heidelberg Catechism uh, Q&A 112, and it really simply asks uh, about the Ninth Commandment, you know, which reads, Thou shalt not lie. And this is a 400-year-old like, document to explain uh, how we believe things in the Bible, and what you're not seeing here is a lot of scriptural proof. I'm just going to read the headlines. If you're a Christian, here's what God requires, that I must not give false testimony among anyone, against anyone. Twist no one's words, not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly and unhurt. I think about it, just, just that line. Um, it occurred to me, I, I don't really do much commenting on social media or news stories, but I've often thought that I could probably just copy those sentences and post it as a comment under a good chunk of things that I see my Christian friends posting on social media about writers, speakers, politics, whatever. God demands a higher standard of what most of us do. 
I'll, I'll keep reading. I will not give false testimony against anyone. That, that's hard. I will not twist anyone's words. Like, I won't spin when I talk about someone. I will not join in condemning anyone rashly and unheard, which says you got to research things before you condemn things. I mean, that covers so much of, I mean, forget anyone else, of what I say and think about. Rather, the catechism says, I must avoid all lying and deceit. And again, if it were me, uh, I would write, avoid lying as much as you can. Like, I know it's really hard to research everything, avoid deceit, but it's really hard to avoid, like, tilting stories or spinning things or it's hard to research everything. Who's got time for all that is what I would say, right? Not a big deal. The catechism takes a different approach than me. It says, I must avoid all lying and deceit as, look what it says, this is intense, as the devil's own works under penalty of God's wrath. Like, I can't think of a graver way of phrasing this. I can't think of a, a higher stakes way of talking about the power of your words. And the catechism continues, and again, this isn't the Bible, this is our doctrinal belief. It is a summary of Lots and lots of other scripture you could study. Um, I think you have footnotes in your handout. Rather, in court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do what I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. This is a big deal. This is what God demands of us even when I'm talking about bad people who I disagree with. As a Christian, I am called to defend and promote not just the truth, but their honor and reputation. Which, think about how hard that is. And just in case you're like, well, my enemies are worse than their enemies. I mean, James is talking about the early church, people who literally became refugees because their neighbors persecuted them and threatened to throw them in prison and God is saying, okay, tell the truth about them. Sure, Nero may be burning uh, Christians alive, but he's not that ugly. Like, let's, let's honor his reputation. Let's be honest about things, which is so hard, right? And to be clear, this is not a guide for, like, elite Christians, for pastors or leaders. This is just, this is Ten Commandments. This is base Christian ethics. And the fact that I am so easily to say this is not a big deal maybe says more about me than about anything else. Because God says this is incredibly important. In fact, don't take my word for it. This is what James says. With our tongues, we bless our Lord and Father. With our tongues, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With the same mouth comes blessing and cursing. My brothers, James says, these things ought not be so. Does a spring, he asked, pour from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? I mean, of course not, right? That's not how springs work. Can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. Neither can a, a salt pond produce fresh water. In other words, there is something deeply dysfunctional about Christians who can't control how they talk. And for me, maybe for you, I think it's easy to say it's fine if 
someone comes to church, sings songs, and then posts wild things on Facebook. I might think it's fine if someone reads scripture and then gossips about mutual acquaintances at coffee hour. That's, that's normal. James says it's not normal. It is not fine if someone worships and then shares gossip about family you know that's just not fair. But James, in fact, James is willing to offend offenders like me because James just goes there. He goes, Sam, if your words fall short of God's intention for your words, you are living inconsistently with the faith that you process. What kind of Christian are you, James would ask, if you gossip, twist words? What kind of Christian, James is raising the question, if you don't always defend the honor of people you disagree with? I mean, if you asked me, I'd say you'd be pretty normal. James says, you're a dysfunctional, problematic Christian who needs to repent. And I've got opinions about this, but I'm just going to read God's word here. James asks, who is wise and understanding among you? How do you know who's wise? How do you know who really gets it? James answers, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. In other words, this is fascinating. If you're not sure what to say, do the right thing. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom, this will be an important line here, that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But wisdom from above, so looking to Jesus, looking to the Lord, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I'm just going to read those last two verses again. Let it just sink in. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We have covered a lot of scripture, more than I could cover well. I'd encourage you to underline, highlight, circle, and really meditate on these things. I just want to end by giving you maybe a simple overview of what I think God has for me and maybe you this morning. First point, guys, words are challenging. And especially when you're going through trials of various kinds, you hit your thumb and you think you don't have any choice but to say something unhelpful. The fact is you've seen this a bunch of different ways. Hurt people, what? Yeah, and we think we don't have a choice. But God, in his wisdom from above, gives us a different way of using our words during trials. That's important because the second thing from this passage is that words are incredibly destructive, and they're out of control. 
And we could go around sharing stories about the harm that we've had or started. But the fact is we're all going around starting forest fires because we're suffering. And then we wonder why our community smells like smoke and our world seems on fire. But I think the weight of what James says is that people who have true faith have a foundation to speak differently. They've got a choice. And the, the, the last thing James says is that we ought to be different. So here's the question. What do we do in light of what James has told us? I think James is telling us to do three things. I'm going to give you a bullet list, three different things that if you could start doing these things, it could start changing your life, your family. I, I, I'm not, I don't want to exaggerate, but I think if Christians started doing this, we would change the world. And the fact is we can't avoid going through valleys. You can't help but getting stressed, exhausted, and countering things that seem beyond your control. What you can help is what you say. You have the ability to change how you react when you're going through a valley. In fact, I'm going to go through three things. I'm going to ask you to say them after me. In fact, next week, I'm going to ask you if you remember them. But here's the three things. One, be slow to speak. James has said this a bunch of times. The best way to not start a fire is not throwing matches in a dry wood, right? Everyone say this with me. Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. Second thing. And this is bringing in a whole bunch of themes. If you read James in a couple sittings, you'll see this over and over again. The second thing, be quick to good works. You'll see this in verse 13. Who is wise and understanding? If I were to answer James's question, I'd say, well, here's what wise people say, and I'd have some ideas of what wise people sound like. James says, if someone is wise, remember what he says, let them by their, remember, by their good works show that they're wise. I would say, if you're wise, here are some good words to say to build up people in love. But James says, demonstrate that you're wise by your good conducts in meekness and wisdom, which is why James has already said so many times that you, know, that you shouldn't show favoritism, that you should care for orphans and widows and vulnerable, to uh, follow the royal law of loving the neighbor as yourself. Because I think when you're suffering... Be slow to speak, but be quick to good works. Everyone say, be quick to good works. It's good. The last one, maybe the most important one, look to Jesus. This touched a bunch in this book. Living waters, fruit, we saw those words already. Last week, we saw what the kind of faith looks like that gives you stability for the future. This week, we saw this line, the wisdom from above. The fact is, when you're hurt, you almost can't help but hurt people. When I hit my thumb with a hammer, I almost can't control how I react. The fact is, suffering people by themselves almost can't help but make things work, make things worse. In fact, if you've ever thought about this, if you've ever tried to use your words always appropriately, you'll very quickly discover how hard it is, especially when you're stressed or exhausted or going through a valley, which raises the question, who can possibly fix us? Who can possibly give us the kind of peaceful hearts that don't lash out? Who can give us clarity when suffering clouds our judgment? The answer is, is something that comes from above. 
Jesus in Matthew 12, 24 says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Which is to say, a changed heart is the way to change your speech. Our struggle with our reaction stems from a war happening in our hearts. And the gospel, God's work in our heart is what changes us. And it looks like the gospel. Faith, trust, repentance, grace, kindness, and Jesus, the word made flesh, offers us forgiveness. And the spirit changes our hearts in ways that allows us to speak in ways that represent our Lord instead of our flesh. So if you're a follower of of Christ, be slow to speak, be quick to good works, look to Jesus. The wisdom above, the wisdom from above is pure, peaceful, open to reason, full of mercy, good fruits, it's impartial, sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That's what James says. That's what Jesus, wisdom from above, does in your life. So my encouragement, Christians, follow him, repent, look to Jesus, admire how Jesus loved his enemies even in the midst of incredible suffering. Jesus had the stability that it took to not fall apart in suffering, not to resort to fight or flight when going through the deepest valleys. That's what Jesus is like. Looking to Jesus means being like Jesus. Now that's, that's what you do if, if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, Remember, this is primarily written to Christians. If you're not, if you're joining us here or online, you're just fascinated by Jesus or Christianity, maybe do this in reverse. Maybe start with number three. I'd invite you to look to Jesus first, to taste and see that the Lord is good, that there is a foundation for you to trust in, that there is someone who loves you and, and died for you, and if that's not familiar to you, I just invite you to lean in to discover his kindness, the love of Christ. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian, to have true faith in ways that change your heart and your faith. And pick up a Bible in the back. We have pamphlets. Uh, number three, looking to Jesus is really important. But all of us, I mean, as we think about the words that we say, as we think about how to use our communication to make bad situations better and not worse. This week, I just want you to commit to guard against gossip, guard against slander, guard against tearing people down for your own benefit, and make the choice, especially when you're stressed or tired or worried about things. Use your words to show God's love to others, and may we seek the Lord's help to give our language to the Lord alone who changes our hearts and our minds. So God in heaven, I pray that you would remind us that you are our foundation. You are the rock of ages. You've been so faithful to us. Can we trust you in a real practical way that protects us against the storms that swell in this life? when the waves get big, when the rain tears things down, when the fires burn, that we can be firm because you are our rock. Can you help our words to be peaceful, reasonable, gracious? Can they build each other up by pointing to you?
And can you convict us and nudge us toward repentance when we fail? Father, can you help us to look to you? Help us be quick to good works, and may we be slow to speak, and may our words honor and glorify you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.